Hello. Thanks for listening and joining us on the Be Yourself Happy, Healthy, Hopeful podcast. I'm your host, Steph, a health promoter from the Bulimia Anorexia Nervosa Association here in Windsor, Ontario. On this podcast, we explore topics related to health, mental wellness, and creating a happy, healthy, and hopeful life full of opportunities for yourself. Okay, awesome. We're on, and I have a very special guest for a very special time of year. Um, This episode is releasing during Eating Disorders Awareness Week here in Canada, and uh, we are so thrilled to have an amazing guest today. Her name is Chloe Grande. You might already be familiar with Chloe, but um, I I want Chloe to tell our listeners who she is and um, why she's passionate about this topic. Hey, Chloe. Hey, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and to speak with you. Um, So yeah, I can give a bit of a background. My name, obviously, it's Chloe, and I'm an eating disorder recovery speaker, writer, and blogger. So my story kind of goes back to the pandemic where I actually experienced a relapse with my eating disorder, and this was something I hadn't experienced to that extent since I was a teenager. So being an adult and being in your mid to late 20s with an eating disorder is very different than having your family support. So I essentially had to go through recovery all over again. And having a background in writing and communications, I thought, you know what, I'm at a point where I'm tired of being secretive about this. And I started blogging about it. So when that blog began, it was really surprising because I had so many people reaching out to say, hey, I can relate, you know, I have family members, this is something that needs to be talked about more. And slowly but surely, I realized that there was a potential to turn this side project into a business. And so I'm really happy to say it's actually almost exactly a year now that I've been just working full time for myself um, in this advocacy role. Mm, Yes, you're doing such important work. um, And I know that you know, the voice of someone with lived experience, it really is an invaluable voice to hear, especially with the topic of eating disorders. As you know, there's so much misconceptions in our society mm-hmm. about, you know, stereotypes and, um, you know, all of uh, the information out there isn't necessarily always accurate. So your voice, I think, really helps, um, you know, amplify those with a lived experience and, you um, you know, I think that says a lot about you as a person to be that candid and that open about this. Oh, thank you. It, it definitely took time to get to this place. I would say that it wasn't something that happened overnight. I think for me, it was like writing was sort of where it began because that was my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, you know, there's a different effect to reading something and then speaking to hundreds of people. It's just, um, yeah, taking it to that next level. So, Yeah, it's exciting to see. And, you know, I've always been inspired by other people's stories who've done this, you know, like decades ago when no one was talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, so I think a good place maybe to start is if you can and if you feel comfortable telling us a little bit about perhaps your story and how you've gotten here. And, you know, you can talk more to perhaps some of the contributors that you see looking back that maybe played a role in the development of your eating disorder or um, just what you think is important um, piece, an important piece of your own story? I mean, everyone's story 
it's there's so many layers to it and it's sometimes hard just to condense it but I would say, you know, there are a couple factors looking back where I definitely notice now, oh, you know, that was probably a red flag. And I think a couple ones that come to mind would be a being a young athlete. And so I was competing in gymnastics at the time. And a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, you're in gymnastics. It's such a appearance focused sport. But I, I really think if you're an athlete in any sport, there's an increased pressure mm-hmm. to perhaps look a certain way. And you also have unsolicited comments on your body all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, no matter no matter what sport that you're in. And so, you know, that put an extra pressure on just focusing on my body. And then the other thing was going through puberty was really hard. Like I think with eating disorders, a lot of times if you're going through like a major life transition, um, your coping mechanisms may turn to food and exercise and those sort of things. And so when I was really unhappy with my body, I was looking for some sort of control. And then I think finally also has just been this deep-rooted sense of perfectionism that I've always had as a kid. And I, I based a lot of my worth on external factors. And so when I was able to, after going through a lot of therapy, you know, recognize other things that bring me value besides my parents, besides um, you know, looking a certain way that, that really helped me move away from my eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think you brought up, um, so many, uh, great things in terms of the contributors and perhaps even areas of change and that people aren't necessarily aware of that can be harmful. Um, like one being comments or language, people use around bodies. Can you speak a little bit to maybe the harmful effects of unsolicited comments, as you said? Yeah, no, I'm so, I'm so glad you brought this up. This is a <laughs> topic of particular interest to me. Um, I, think, I like and even, passion in your voice. <laughs> even talking to other people, there's so many of us who can remember the exact thing someone said, like when we were six or seven right. or eight years old about our body. It's unreal. <laughs> right. I know we um, let just feedback from clients at Banna. It's mm-hmm. similar. They'll say, you know what? I can remember that one comment that just kind of, it was like the last straw. And then it led me down this path. <laughs> yeah, it really sticks with you. And when it comes from people who are close to you, like your family, your friends, it's, it's even that more impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, certain comments though in my past were about my body, but in terms of it being um, like deemed bulky or like muscular. Mm. And so I actually had a lot of body image concerns around like looking quote unquote manly, um, Mm -hmm. not feeling feminine enough. And so even if someone meant it as a compliment, oh, like, oh, wow, your arms are so jacked. It's like, you just, you just don't know the context of where that other person's at. And I, I recognize now, you know, I never ever <laughs> make comments on other people's bodies for that reason, um, because it doesn't matter the intent of the person. It's just something that can really be harmful and just have such devastating consequences. Absolutely. And I think in that environment, that sport culture environment that you were in, you kind of already had like this perfect um, mix of factors that would potentially already put you at 
a risk and then the comments. So um, I only bring that up because I guess people don't necessarily realize all of those contributing factors. Um, so just you kind of bringing that to light, I think does drive the point home. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess also, um, speaking to your relationship with food as an athlete, can you get a little bit into that and maybe how that might have impacted your relationship with food or certain food choices or deeming certain foods that's good or bad? Is that something that you also went through? It's like you read my mind (laughs) for sure. I think sometimes if you're an athlete, you start to almost look at your body as a machine. Mm -hmm. And I also see this a lot with fitness influencers and just even the like terminology we use around like fueling our bodies. And um, it's very, it doesn't feel human almost. And Mm -hmm. so I think when you're an athlete and you're focused on performance and you want to do better, you think, okay, what, what's in my control? Um, so you think maybe changing certain aspects about your body will make you perform better. And I also think there's a, you know, a really fine line with things like orthorexia, like an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating, which, you know, is more prevalent in athletes and so it, it can be very innocent because it can start as this desire to to want to be better and want to be healthy, but can be taken to very, very much to extreme lengths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, as you're explaining that, I was also considering how just athletes themselves, perhaps they're in that bubble or they're attracted to certain sports due to their own personal traits where their standards are always already higher for self. And um, you mentioned perfectionism. So for those listening, there is some link um, that that has been found um, where perfectionism is a trait that we do sometimes see with um, clients who have um, eating disorders. So can you explain how your perfectionism presented? Ooh, great question. Yeah. It's funny. <laughs> it's funny because I remember saying to one therapist, oh, you know, I'm not a perfectionist because I'm not perfect. And they sort of laughed. He's like, oh that's goodness. not what perfectionism is. I, I, you know what? And I think a lot of people can relate to that statement. Um, right? Like this high achievement, high standard ideal that's in our society will hustle hard. Um, so, yeah, no, I think a lot of people can relate and maybe just kind of get swept up in that (laughs) it's so easy to it's very normalized like this idea that you always have to be striving to do better and I found actually a lot of the discourse around the pandemic where it's like okay we're in lockdown but you still need to learn Mm. new things and you know bake all these things and still work out and it's like can we just pause and you know, this is kind of a traumatic, it is a traumatic experience. So it's very much ingrained in our culture and moving away from perfectionism for me has been purposely like not doing things up to my, um, unrealistic standards and being okay with B plus work. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, there needs to be more of that in our society and there is such value to it. Um, it allows connection to self, it allows connection to family and people or friends that we love. Um, and it really allows our 
nervous system to just calm down because we're mm-hmm. inundated with so much during um, our, the course of our day. I think even more so maybe than in the past. Um, and setting high standards is not necessarily always healthy. Sometimes we do need to take a break. Um, <laughs> so hundred percent more breaks, more breaks. That's the biggest takeaway. Yeah. So I can, like you said, I can imagine that's part of Uh, maybe some of the coping mechanisms that you picked up on during your recovery journey. So um, I'm curious, maybe you can share others that you rely on now in your daily life. In terms of healthy coping mechanisms? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. um, I talk about this all the time. So (laughs) I think those who follow me on Instagram know I love journaling. I am a huge, huge advocate for journaling. And it's funny because now it's really, really popular. It's mm-hmm. sort of exploded on TikTok um, yeah. <laughs> recently, but it, that wasn't always the case. And I've been journaling since I was seven years old. So it's really interesting to look back and sort of see what was going on through my head when I was sick, before I was sick, yeah. um, and how the thoughts sort of like, overtook me but I find that when you're going through an eating disorder and you feel so isolated so alone journaling is just really an outlet where you can release those really challenging um, conversations in your head and seeing it on paper and reading out loud you realize well you know this this probably isn't as true as it might sound in my head and you can push back against that eating disorder voice yeah Ooh. so um you just said that and it prompted me to um (laughs) ask you about you know that eating disorder voice and i know in therapy sometimes therapists encourage their client to externalize that voice um that it's like a almost a different part of them um is that something that you worked on with your therapist definitely Mm -hmm. and it seemed really bizarre at the beginning (laughs) um (laughs) <laughs> I, I think there was an exercise. This is, it sounds so cliche too, where it's like, here's an empty chair, pretend it's your eating disorder and yell at it. And that was wow. really uncomfortable for me because I, I really felt like my identity was my eating disorder. There was no distinction um, between the two. And so, yeah, even that exercise of be angry at it, it's like, oh, well, then that's being angry at myself. So sort of teasing apart, what I was like before um, and talking back against that voice. So while that exercise wasn't super helpful, um, I know things like, oh, giving your eating disorder a name, that has been a bit helpful to me. Well, it seems silly, it's it's worked. And I've heard it's worked with other people and some people, you know, it hasn't worked. So to each their own. Right, yeah. I think it is such an individual, process or journey or whatever you'd like to label it for each person um, it kind of points to how eating disorders in general are very individual uh, specific Mm. to the person also really complex I think um, perhaps that's even a misconception out there that they always present in a similar way which isn't necessarily the case Um, and they take a lot of time to recover from as well Um, because you can imagine someone's been um, coping in a certain way for such a long time that Mm -hmm. all of this is very novel to them to be coping in this new, different 
more productive way, um, maybe a kinder way is um, what they're learning to do. So I guess what I wanted to ask you about is like um, that process for you, like looking back, maybe when you began it, you had an idea of what recovery was. And then now looking back, and seeing perhaps the whole process or the journey for itself, mm-hmm. um, what are some things that like you didn't expect or um, do you now uh, take away from your recovery? Ooh, yeah. all these questions are really, really good. They're so deep. Um, it's So much has changed too. That's the other thing I would mm-hmm. say as well. Like I think um, now we're sort of recognizing that yeah, recovery looks different for so many people. And um, also I find eating disorder behaviors sort of shift and morph. Um, so I it wasn't at the beginning, it was like, oh, I, I really feel like anorexia was an, a label I identified with. And like, mm-hmm. wait a second, no, it's, it's much more complex than that. But I would say my initial view of recovery was very much focused on achieving like certain numbers and mm-hmm. very much like the medical, um, physical side. Whereas now I'm recognizing that, and this was also some of my own, um, misconceptions around an eating disorder was that I thought you had to look a certain way. And I'm realizing mm-hmm. you can be really, really sick. And the doctor will, will say, Oh, you look fine. Or you're, you know, whatever your, your vitals are great. Um, et cetera. And it's more so what's going on in your mind that can be really, really harmful and really destructive. Mm-hmm. And I'm also just recognizing too, it, it's just an ongoing thing that I'll always have to be mindful of. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just go away. And I think that's another misconception too, is that you you just lose the eating disorder overnight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, when like at Bano, we do education and we, we do go to schools and talk a little bit about body image, um, just in more of a general way. However, one thing we do impart on them is how um, we all have bad body image days, and that's actually normal. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I think someone who has had an eating disorder, perhaps um, there is more focus on those bad body image days at, throughout their life. Um, but now in your stage of life where you've come this far and yes, you still have to deal with it ongoingly and work on self. Um, I wanted to see if you could speak to how you do deal with those bad body image days and they're bound to happen. They happen for all of us. Um, but for you, what are some of the strategies you use when you, you're having those bad body image days? You're right. They're they're always bound to happen. And I feel they sneak up too in very unexpected ways. We just got through the holidays. I know the holidays can bring up a lot of challenges with some folks seeing family that they haven't seen in a long time or just an increased focus on food. But I recently, it was an Instagram live that I joined um, with a woman who was leading a workshop all about Bought, um, bad body image days and mm-hmm. she actually it was so cute she called it bbi days which i thought was just <laughs> a nice little nickname and had us all doing a prompt for journaling around how we can 
take better care of ourselves. And people got really creative. Mm. Like some of the things we talked about was tapping into our inner child and doing things for fun, um, like playing games. Of course, being around other people shifts that lens from being so internally focused to having other distractions. Um, And I would also just say, when I'm in a bad body image day, that that takes a lot of energy. And so I really have to, you know, think about, okay, I'm going to have to be extra mindful of when I'm doing my meals, um, what I'm doing for movement today. It's going to look different for a bad body image day, but it's temporary. That's the good news. It is temporary and I I can manage it. I can get through it. Yeah, I actually have, I like, well, I like her um, little acronym there. I'll probably be like, I'm having a BBI. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, and also really creative. It sounds like that was um, a unique uh, perspective that that IG Live. Um, But I like how you, like, I actually don't know, I didn't really think about that. Like how, how much more energy it does take and energy is precious too, right? And um, maybe sometimes you just got to think, you know, I'm going to expend this much energy on self today and other things can be on the back burner. Another exactly. rest coming up again a little bit <laughs> as um, a theme here or just prioritizing self, self-care. Totally. Yeah. Just shifting that priority. Um, and it, it's really hard. Also, I think, you know, being a perfectionist, being a people pleaser, yeah. those sometimes go hand in hand and you feel like you're letting down others. But I think letting down yourself is is ultimately the worst feeling and you have to be there for yourself, especially in recovery where it, it's your body and, and your mind that you have to live with for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Yep. All we got is ourself. Um, well, I mean, not all, but... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I knew the sentiment, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, you may have already spoken to this, but um, in case you wanted to add... I mean, I think recovery is all about fostering maybe a more positive relationship with the body. Um, Maybe body acceptance is part of that or um, seeing your body in a a new way, maybe appreciating it for its functionality. Um, I wondered if you had anything else to add about cultivating more loving kindness for your body and what that looks like to you. Mm Mm-hmm. It's, it's difficult at first to go from a relationship where you feel a lot of hate towards yourself and so much disdain and negative thoughts to being completely in love with yourself. And I think I've learned that there, there can be a middle ground and neutrality has been a really eye-opening concept too, where I don't have to love every aspect of it, but I can be accepting and know that there are things outside of my body um, that make me who I am. So realizing too that there's there's a spectrum and I don't always have to feel great. Yeah, kind of going back to that idea with the bad body image days, um, these feelings are temporary and they're very, very universal. That's the other thing too I'm recognizing. It's like, okay, something I thought was only an issue with me is really a lot more common than we would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Um, okay, so I want to shift a little bit 
maybe not even speaking to your own experience, but just to help seeking in general or accessing care, um, it can seem very overwhelming for someone to take those very first steps in order to reach out for help. Um, I know that's due to stigma out there, to shame, embarrassment, um, fear of reaction, and it can it can mm-hmm. seem like a mountain to someone. So uh, I'm curious, what advice might you have for someone who is hesitant about reaching out or hesitant about treatment? Can you speak to that? Mm-hmm. It's it's so true though. It's again an illness that really thrives in secrecy and shame and isolation. And so it makes sense that it can be really a hurdle to to reach out for help. And I think it's all about sort of those baby steps where it can be really difficult to, you know, think, okay, well, something's a bit off, but then talking to, for example, like your your family physician, if you happen to have one, that seems like a jump. It might be easier to start with smaller things where perhaps there's like a a social media account that you're following that's about eating disorder recovery and like maybe screenshotting or sending one of those posts to someone that you feel comfortable talking to and you're like hey I saw this and you know it it really resonated with me um like would you have a chance to talk a little bit more about this and starting the conversation that way um again like for me writing's always sort of been my natural form of communications and so sometimes it's easier to like send someone a text and say Mm -hmm. hey um I'm I'm struggling with this do do you have a second to talk a little bit more and start the conversation there and really work your way up but um yeah the biggest thing is that other people you know they're they're probably going through a similar challenge I think Mm -hmm. a lot of us we all have bodies like we all eat food it really is a more universal challenge than we think, which I I know I keep saying, but it, it's so, so true. It's not like mm. this thing that only impacts a couple of people. No, not at all. Um, I think that was great advice. And I think even like each little small step leads you to, you know, the final outcome and goal. And it doesn't matter how long it takes anyone. Um, so I think that's really, you know, tangible, easy or not easy, sorry, a tangible step that someone can take is say, okay, I got from point A to point B, and then how do I get to C? And it can be very small. Yeah, Um, it builds confidence too. Yes, and and confidence and hope is needed in the recovery journey. I think we almost Mm. underestimate the the value of that like celebrating those little small wins is so important in order to get to the next win so Mm -hmm. yeah um in terms of support that exists out there um when you went through your journey did you find it easy to access care or supports or resources or looking back do you think there could have been more or a a better ideal situation it was interesting because as a young person I was 15 years old so a lot of my treatment and my recovery process was other people my family teachers coaches sort of pushing and prodding me along the way Mm -hmm. and um so I I felt I I felt like I was supported, but that changed a lot when I went off to university. And there I felt like I was just dropped in by myself. And I was like, you know, you're on your own, figure it out. Where there was very little 
eating disorder informed clinicians at my school. Um, a lot of the supports for people with eating disorders, you had to go pretty, you know, a decent amount outside of campus. Um, and it was really challenging to, to find. So it just felt like even if you were in, um, like looking for help, you're just constantly faced with obstacles. So it's really, really exhausting. And mm-hmm. the other thing was that uh, everything was in person. So I think over the pandemic, the one of the very few small silver linings is that we have a bit more accessibility mm-hmm. with virtual care. Um, so joining like support groups, I, I work as a peer mentor also with Eating Disorders Nova Scotia. So mm. yeah, having those things where you can like log on to a Zoom call once a week and turn off your video and just be in a space where you feel um, accepted. Like that would have made such a difference for me when I was um, a teenager and off alone at university. Mm-hmm. And I know um, now as a part of your business, you are trying to fill that gap, um, maybe working more with colleges and universities and um, providing that education and speaking at different events. So can you speak a little bit about your work you're doing um, with other universities or organizations? Mm-hmm. It's definitely a gap I saw. And I thought at first, you know, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just something that I am noticing and it's gone better. And so I mm-hmm. did a very formal Instagram poll <laughs> and <laughs> I wanted to just see what's out there. And it was overwhelming. The response of students that told me, yeah, no, there's absolutely nothing for us. We very much feel like we know eating disorders and disordered eating is an issue and the administration is in denial. And that's where I'm like, okay, the students recognize this is an issue. I know I've had issues with it. Like, how can we change this? And so I, I did a lot of outreach around orientation week events where I spoke about my own experience, but more in the sense that I talked about what I wish I had known as a first year student um, and having conversations with friends, with family. I really wanted to make, I don't want to say normalize eating disorders, but normalize talking about eating disorders. Right. So you should be scared um, to approach someone because again, that just sort of feeds into this idea that you're alone, no one's there to help you. And it's great because it's really resonating. Um, And I was talking with a student at Western and we're looking at doing training for Dawn. So it's growing. And I feel like there's a lot of momentum to keep this up, like similar to the way we've changed our trainings around sexual assault and sexual violence, like Mm -hmm. eating disorders, the prevalence of them in a student population. It's just something that needs to be addressed at a much larger scale. Mm hmm such important work and that's wonderful and it's wonderful that you can kind of feel that momentum um it's so needed um you mentioned something uh, i think last question when you're speaking about treatment um you use the Mm -hmm. term an eating disorder informed clinician and how that was lacking and i just wondered if you could speak a little bit more to what you meant by that and why that's important Mm. Yes. Good question. (laughs) Even it's funny, like even that terminology, it's been such a learning curve for me too. like Mm. learning about trauma informed care. And of course, there's a huge overlap with trauma and eating disorders, but things I didn't really know at the time. Um, And unfortunately, I've learned 
from people who are currently a medical student or a students or gone through medical school. Like there really isn't a huge focus on eating disorders. So I think a lot of stereotypes sort of become baked in to um, the care that clinicians are offering and they just, they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Um, and the other thing too is someone with an eating disorder, I recognize now that I wasn't always the most forthcoming about certain behaviors. Mm. So if you're coming from an eating disorder informed perspective, you're aware of these types of things um, and you yeah. realize that, okay, eating disorders are not just about weight. There, there's more to it. You know, it's not just the young, thin, upper middle class woman. Um, there's other people that will have eating disorders that look differently those sort of things and sort of working against um, those those stereotypes and those stigmas that already exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's such an important tidbit, what you said, how um, the client might not be as forthcoming too, because I don't think many, um, I don't know, like someone who isn't informed in eating disorder, that would even be on their radar. I really don't. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. But it's such a good point because um, I'm sure you see this with your clients, but I remember having one physician where she sort of had a checklist approach to an eating disorder where she was like, mm. you know, hop on the scale, blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, do you eat breakfast? Yes. Oh, perfect. Okay. Keep eating breakfast. That means you don't have an eating disorder. Yeah. I was like, mm, what? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> have you peered into no. my brain? Have you peered into my psyche? <laughs> exactly. So things like that. Um and it, it, again, talking back to hope, I think mm-hmm. we're at that stage too, where there is that greater awareness, like coming out of, uh, I mean, we're still in the pandemic, but just having seen the explosion in diagnoses with eating disorders, it's like, okay, wait, we need to unlearn a lot of what we know about eating disorders. Yes. Yeah. I think I'm just going to leave that there because boom. Um, (laughs) So um, you did speak to even utilizing, you know, the poll feature on your Instagram. And I know that you do share a lot of valuable information on there. Um, So we know social media gets a bad rap and yes, that does exist Mm. out there. That's a fair thing to believe. And um, absolutely there is maybe some harmful things happening on social media. Um, but do you think it can be used for good and specifically around this topic? Oh, okay. So my, my, I definitely have a complicated relationship with social media and it's funny because, right? Yes. (laughs) It's, it's like a love hate kind of thing, but I've, I've worked also as a social media manager and like, yeah. So like learning and seeing the back end of how content is showing up, how it's, very tailored to things that we're not even aware of. Like it's mm-hmm. really mind blowing to see, you know, how ads get fed to us, that sort of thing. Um, and also I'd worked a little bit too with influencers and like seeing how edited things were and really just like superficial. So I feel like that really changed the way that I consume social media and made me um, definitely critical of it but at the same time we know it's fake and we still feel bad yes um so it's tough to really like tease that apart I think with eating disorders too there's some really really amazing communities Mm -hmm. um and organizations like BANA that are really combating all those harmful eating disorder glorification 
um, stereotypes, all those sort of things. So I think, you know, even though there are the bad, there are people who really are trying to work against that. And I think we need to give those folks credit um, because otherwise, yeah, then we lose hope, right? If it's just this negative spiral of filters and perfection. Mm -hmm. And it is such a big part of our lives. So um, I think it's almost necessary to seek those types of accounts out, like being very diligent about, okay, what am I filling my feed with? Maybe I need a little audit here and there because I don't know, somehow this ended up on my feed and it's making me feel a little negative. Um, and that's okay. Like to create a space and, you know, continue, continually edit it because, um, it does have an impact on us. Just like you mentioned there. It does. I love that. Like auditing, editing, mm-hmm. um, a big fan of the mute button. <laughs> oh, me too. Yeah. Everything you were saying there, I was like, yes, I can relate. <laughs> Yeah, Um, such a universal feeling. Yeah, and so a lot of your work, I mean, I guess some of it is online and some of it is doing outreach and writing. Um, So I'm just very curious as what your vision is for your business going into the future. Okay, so the big ultimate goal has always been, ever since I was a kid, I've always, always wanted to be an author and write a book. And it's been fantastic because I'm actually in this amazing fellowship program with Yale University. And Mm. it's all around lived experience and transformational leadership. And so it's so, so cool. We're in this environment where I'm like surrounded by other people who've had their own challenges with mental illness and really like flipping that narrative to be like, yeah, we've gone through some really hard things, but Mm -hmm. How can we use that to our advantage? How can we um, break down certain barriers, you know, and really show that our lived experience is of value? Even though we're not clinicians, we're still offering something that is very, very important. And so for my final project, I'm working on a memoir and it's super, super exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't have much of an update. I'm very much (laughs) at the early stages, but I, I feel like with writing this book, I want to use it to, you know, continue to grow my outreach, my platform um, and speak outside of Ontario um, and really use that book to tie into greater conversations. Yeah, you know what, speaking to you today, I can tell that you're already going to achieve those things. So um, I'm excited to see it all play out. I'll be watching your the trajectory of your career. Oh, yeah. Thank you. My face is like beaming right now. Like at this topic just brings me so much joy. You know, even though yeah. it's it's really difficult to have these conversations, it's something that I feel so passionate about. And I don't think I'll ever run out of things to discuss around eating disorders. No. And you know what? I think like you were mentioning how one services are needed, more education is needed. And so it's really important work as well. And having the passion is like I know because I work in it too, like you need the passion um, mm. sometimes almost as a way to keep you going too and, and to do this work, um, at least I do. So um, that's that's one of my last questions too is like what inspires you to can you continue the work when you are maybe having some hard days? It can be hard. It's a lot of 
emotional labor. Yeah. I would say, you know, conversations like this really bring me joy. I was looking forward to this all week. Good. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> um, yeah. And just so seeing, being connected with like-minded folks that are also working in this space is amazing. Um, one of the most surreal experiences has been, I actually reconnected with an old psychiatrist and I'm helping her do some wow. research work and I'm on a committee with Ontario Health and it's sort of this pinch me moment where yeah. I'm like, wow, I can give back and I can provide value and in, valuable input and so can all of us with lived experience. Yeah. But um, I think the motivation, it does have to come internally as well because if you're constantly re- re- um relying on others to say oh you're doing great like keep it going that'll only get you so far I think just deep down I've always felt that this is an area where there's so much room for improvement um and I don't think I'll stop until we start seeing some of those actions actually taking place I always say like someone is living on purpose when I feel like their Mm. purpose aligns with their career or just like who they are in life and I can tell that's you I I feel it (laughs) uh thank you no you know likewise I I feel that same energy um again it's taken you know I've tried out a lot of different paths and this really if yeah when you find something that's very meaningful um it keep it inspires you to keep going to those days where it's like am I even making a difference it's really like all those like small persistent you have to be super stubborn I would say in this type of work yeah well and and you know what and in my opinion this is why we're here right like I mean whatever it is whatever someone um someone's passion is and like specifically for me it's important that um I'm helping someone and I'm being a human and just, you know, listening to their story or, you know, teaching them something new, giving them a new perspective, like all of that, like those minute, really small things, those small interactions. It, that's why we're here. Um, and like mm. this topic, I think, like you were saying, so many people can relate to. Everyone has experienced maybe to some degree. Um so it's an important one to talk about. It's an important one to share, like to shine your light around. Yeah, I love what you said about just being human. Yeah, of course. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the eating disorder like strips away a part of your identity. So in some way, doing this kind of work is taking a stand against that eating disorder. Like you stole so much from me, yeah. but now I'm in charge. <laughs> oh, good. I love that. Um all right, so I'm getting to the end here. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you you had hoped we would talk about? Maybe just around, I think, the theme of this year's Eating Disorder yes. Awareness Week. That's right. For those listening, um, February 1st to 7th is Eating Disorders Awareness Week in Canada. Um, so across Canada and here in Ontario, eating disorder organizations, hospitals, um, not-for-profits all kind of band together and try to educate the public and raise awareness around eating disorders. Um, Specifically, this year's theme um, that has been organized through NEDIC, which is the National Eating Disorder Information Center in Toronto, um, they have a specific theme that is transforming asks to action. That one's kind of hard to say, but, (laughs) um, and (laughs) so I'll let Chloe kind of take it over from here as to why that's like an important topic. 
Yeah, it's it's such a great one because I think a lot of caregivers, people with lived experience, clinicians, we've sort of reached this breaking point where we've been asking for a lot of things and we're not really getting anywhere. So it's almost reached a point of anger and frustration. And that's why I like this idea where, you know, we're done with talking, like now we need to see some real change. Um, so I'm really excited to see, um, there's so many events going on. Um, there's always some really, really great conversations, whether it's like in-person, online workshops, um, and also coinciding with Black History Month too, and realizing the intersection there of how certain people aren't necessarily um, receiving diagnoses or receiving mm-hmm. treatment that, you know, their white counterparts would receive. So it's it's great. I think it's going to bring a lot of like really nuanced um dialogue that perhaps hasn't been there in previous years mm-hmm. um and also i i would imagine that netic is in the works of providing some resources around this topic so if you're listening you're wondering okay like what can i do um given that this is the topic they'll probably have a lot of action steps that you could take um so i would definitely check out their website usually it's netic.ca slash so um head over there during EDA or approaching EDA or even after EDA to figure out um, how you can play a role in this. All right. So um, this was wonderful. Really great. Grateful that you were willing to do this today. Um, I think so many valuable pieces of information were kind of like squeezed into this one hour. Um, I mean, I think you guys should really check out Chloe further. So if someone wants to learn more (laughs) about you or follow along, um, where could they find you? My website is probably the best place for all sorts of things related to my blog um, and upcoming events. And that's chloegrande.com. Um, but you can also find me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle is Chloe She Grows. Little little rhyme there. <laughs> yes. Um, and I'll put that in like the episode description. So um, if you didn't get the spelling or you didn't hear it, don't worry. You can check out the description and um, you can fi- find Chloe that way. Also, um, I'm going to be live on Banna Windsor's Instagram account on the Friday of Eating Disorder Awareness Week. So I believe that's the third. Um, so check us out there if you want to see us a little like in person, live in action. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited for that. Can't wait. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Um, if you or someone you know needs services and you are in the Windsor-Essex community, please visit www.banna.ca. Alternatively, you can visit netic.ca and check out their provider list as well. Um, That is a nationwide directory. Um, Thank you for listening. We are so happy that you joined us for this conversation and happy Eating Disorders Awareness Week 2023.